Okay, if you would, open your Bibles this morning into the book of Romans, and we're looking at the last three verses of the fourth chapter. We're going to be reading there verses 23 through 25 this morning as we look at what I'm calling the family ties of justification or the true Christian life. It is in this section of Scripture that Luther says is encompassed the entire uh, Christian life. And it has caused me to take a moment just to pause to study it further this week, and I hope to present to you that which would help us to understand uh, and appreciate the life of Christ in us. Well, let's um, read God's holy word, beginning in verse 23. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Again, it is God's word for God's people, for God's glory. Amen. So Martin Luther, again, he he says this encompasses the whole Christian life. It would bear some reflection and some pause Uh, to those who are in the Reformed tradition, to take a moment to uh, spend time really laboring over what this text has to say. Uh, It not only gives us pause, it it causes us um, pleasure to be able to spend time with God's Word uh, to study. They say that study of the Word of God is different from reading the Word of God because reading is is like going across a, a, a beautiful lake and, and viewing all the surroundings and viewing the water and appreciating all that you see. But studying is like a glass bottom boat where you see all the life teeming um, underneath. And so there's a time for just the reading and just the uh, surface level of, of gathering and gleaning what God would nourish you in. And I hope that's a regular practice in your life. But, but studying also is that which God would take us deeper. And <clears throat> I'm reminded of a a sermon by Dr. Ian Hamilton at the Banner of Truth one year where he challenged pastors in a 15-minute, it actually takes longer to prepare a shorter sermon, in a 15-minute talk where he talked about us being deep-sea divers in the Word of God, and it has stuck with me. And that's what God calls us to be, especially if we're ministering the Word of God, is to go deep into the Word. And I hope that we do that even now. We... um, We see this text contains two parts. One, how God's revelation is to be used in relation to justification. That's verses 23 and 24. You see predominant what's coming out there is why was it written? Why was this uh, account that we've been looking at for several weeks of Abraham, why was it written down? Was it just that it would be a history book that we would stand back and admire great men and observe their lives? Or is it as as Paul says, is it for you? And um, I'm reminded that back at the resurgence of Reformed theology in the 90s, there was this big reaction to taking texts like David slaying the giant. And because so many churches had abused it by preaching it being all about us, the reaction went the whole other extreme 
And there was these sermons that are still online that have these clips of one preacher that is yelling out, you're not David. And that's true. But let us beware that if we make it all about historical David, all about historical Abraham, then we're not following the apostles' teaching. Because the first section of this text that we'll be looking at says it's not just about Abraham, but it applies to you and me. So we're going to look at really how Scripture is to be used in those verses 23 and 24. Second, how Christ's resurrection. So not only Christ, God's revelation, but Christ's resurrection is to be used in relation to justification. You'll notice in the text the emphasis, or the emphasis, if that helps you, is in the latter part of 24, Paul says the words raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord, and then he, he comes back, raised for our justification. He obviously is underscoring, because we know in the Bible they didn't have highlighters or something to embolden these things with. And the way they would write is by repetition in poetry so that we see what he's after. In this latter part of the text, he is speaking of the resurrection in relation to justification as an important matter. So that's why I'm, I'm calling it the family ties of justification. These are two, I want to put it in the picture of a form of family members, family ties. You wish you didn't have certain family ties, but these are family ties that are really important. You want to glory in these family ties that, that this person in your family, you, you, you probably watch these shows that they go back and they do this ancestry and, uh, you know, sometimes I like the ones where it turns out uh, where they're just surprised. It's not a, like a good thing what they find in their family. That's always gives it the, the worth watching the next one for. Um, but sometimes you find there are some valiant leaders and in your heritage. And it, it does something for the person that discovers that. Well, I want to tell you about two valiant leaders that are part of your family in justification. And that first that we're looking at here, of course, is the true word of Christ. The true word of Christ is, is like a family member in this, this story, this account of, of justification. And these are the kind of family members you need in your heritage when you're in battle. And when you're at war, and when you're in crisis, and when you're facing uh, difficulty, you, you need these type of reminders that this person's in your family. I mean, when you find out that there's a great military leader that was a few generations back in your family, it would cause the men of that family to hold their head a little higher because they know that's part of their family. And when you know the Word of God, the revelation of God is directly connected to the lineage of justification by faith alone and that it's yours, it should cause you as a Christian 
to be able to raise your head and lift your eyes and live truly a blessed life in Jesus Christ. Because you belong to a family that's winning, a family that conquers, a family that by faith will inherit the earth, a family that is following after a king who will not fail, who has under his feet all our enemies. And it is his word that proceeds from his mouth, as the end of our Bible tells us, that will conquer the nations, the kings, and all in authority. There is no nation that will not bow. That there is no person that will not submit in the end. That Christ will be declared Lord and confessed Lord through the whole earth. And we've learned that this promise came because God made this promise as He designed it to Abraham. That all the nations will be blessed through this one seed, through Christ. It is His Word. It is Word that we give our attention to. And in verse 23, look at what it says here. Verse 20, uh, 23, but the words. And what is he, 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 he quotes the Old Testament Scripture. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, meaning Abraham, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him. So the contrast there is showing that it's not just about Abraham. It's about God's people. The scriptures are not clearly in the apostles teaching. Remember, they followed four things in habit. Their, their habit in the Christian life was to give themselves daily. They gave themselves to the apostles teaching. They gave themselves to the prayers they gave themselves to the fellowship. They gave themselves to the breaking of bread. That is something that can be and should be repeated in some way in the Christian life today. And if they're following, and if we are following the apostles' teaching, then we are not taking the word on a given Lord's Day and simply admiring what God did for some patriarch. We realize we are applying what God plans to do in us and through us for his glory. And this is vital. There can be no Christian life if this family member is not in the lineage. If the word of Christ, the true word of Christ, and I say true in the sense it is not the true word of Christ proclaimed, if it is proclaimed merely as a history book and not applying this word to God's people. It is not preaching if we simply are giving a lesson about a man who lived for God. It is only preaching when we make the appeal of how that message applies to men and women of all ages and of all types and all peoples. And we are called to preach the word the true word of God. And he, he's quoting here from Scripture. He's quoting Genesis 15, verse 6, where it says, we read this, this is the, the appearance of Abraham 
to Abraham in a vision, the Lord came and he said this. He said, fear not, Abram, I am your shield and your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, oh, Lord God, what will you give me for I continue or shall die childless? And the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abraham said, or Abraham had said at this time, Behold, you've given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. I want you to pause and think about this. This is Abraham pre-justification. He's talking to God. He's asking God, you've promised this. He's looking to God. In all intents and purposes, he's worshiping God, but he's not justified. Here in this moment is the pivotal moment of Abram's life we've been discovering. He's asking these questions. He's saying, how is this going to happen? You have not given me offspring. A member of my household will be my heir. Behold, it stops right there and it says the word of the Lord came to him. And isn't that the case? The word of the Lord comes to the man, comes to the woman. It's no longer just a history book. It becomes alive. You don't have to make the word alive. You can't make it alive. It is alive. The word of God is a living and active. It pierces deep into our soul where the word is not merely anymore simply that we're reading literature, we're reading history, but this word now becomes that which we are to submit under. And that's what happens here. The word of the Lord came to him. And the word of the Lord said, This man shall not be your heir, your very own son. The Hebrew here is what will come out of your own loins shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and he said, Look, Toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. And then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. We've been unpacking that statement last week, especially. So shall your offspring be. And at that moment, the very quote that we see in the previous text in Abraham's story, it says, And he believed. The Lord, not merely believed in the Lord, not merely believed there was a Lord, not merely believed there was a God, but he believed the Lord. And he counted to him as righteousness. That's an accounting term, meaning that all the righteousness of God was placed on the account of Abraham at that moment. And all his sin, all the debt, was taken away forever. The forever part requires our second part, our second point. But we'll be in this one for a little. Scripture, according to Paul, Scripture is to be applied to the reader's here in Rome, and Scripture 
is to be applied to all who read this letter. It is not simply to be read as history. It's not just about Abraham. It's also about the word of God in our own lives. That's what makes Romans being written necessary is to give us Christian lives. We don't have Christian lives if the true word of Christ isn't preached. And the true word of Christ preached requires not merely the teaching of the characters and the teaching of the propositions, but the application of them to our lives so that these words become personal. Now, let's look at some examples. 1 Corinthians 9, 9 through 10. Well, let's start with Romans 15, 4. For whatever was written in former days was written, why? For our instruction. That through the endurance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. We. Meaning Paul. Meaning the congregation that he's going to come to. And when you think about the whole letter is being written to prepare them to strengthen each other in person in the proclamation of the gospel. And Paul is saying, this must proceed. You must understand the reason why Scripture is written wasn't just to tell you the story of Abraham. It was to bring Abraham's faith in living of your life. That's true instruction. That's how important it is. And that's why he's written this. 1 Corinthians 9, 9-10. It is written in the law of Moses. He's quoting Old Testament. You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Paul's writing still. Does he not certainly speak for our sake? For our sake. It was, it was written... For our sake, because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher should thresh in hope of sharing the crop. So you're like, why is he talking about oxen? Why is he taking an Old Testament law and applying it to the church to practice? He said it's not about the oxen. This was written to give a principle that, and it's a principle that gets my attention because it's the very way I make my livelihood. So this is kind of scripture, you know, what's your life verse? I don't, I don't, you know, really claim to have a life verse, but, but pastors will probably pick this one if they're honest, because it's how they get paid. It's how they make their living because it's on this basis that God had said that the ministry should be given so that they are able to earn their living that way and the churches would support their pastors so that they don't have to get involved in the secular world. That's an application of the word to the church because it wasn't just written so that Old Testament Israel would govern itself and take care of its oxen. It was written so the churches would take care of the pastors. It's a shame today that out there in the economic world, 
that throughout the economic world, the world is looking at the churches and how the churches take care of their pastors. And as a result, there are little boys and little, uh, little younger men that, that are looking at life and they would steer clear of the ministry. Why? Because churches, churches have had gotten the reputation of putting their pastors in poverty. Why? Because they haven't the true word of Christ preached. You know what you want to know? The problem, the problem in the American church is the word of God is not proclaimed as it's meant to for the church to actually apply it in every area. The law of God to be applied to our lives so that we live out every area. And that's an area, again, that could be of interest to me because I have to know why I'm doing what I'm doing, what I'm doing, and, and why it is that I would earn my living from the gospel day in and day out. But I also have to know how to tell other churches. Because you'll find out very quickly if you're a ministry, there are tons of churches and tons of pastors that will begin to talk with you and ask you, and they're going through difficulties. And it's rarely unfortunate that churches are looking for ways to apply this text. But it was meant to be applied. The law of God was to be applied in the church. Example again, 1 Corinthians 10.6. Now, these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. And he, he recounts the history of Israel. And he goes on saying, now these things happened as an example but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. It was written down for us. It was written down for the readers of the Corinthians. It was written down for the church to come. It wasn't merely written for the sake of idolatrous Israel. It was written to be applied in the church. It was written to be taken to heart that we are obligated to the word. <clears throat> the end of the ages has come. Certainly you could put a stake down there because the first century, there was something pivotal happening when it came to the end of the old covenant order and the bringing in of the new. It's the very reason why we stand this day worshiping on the Sunday of the Lord's Day and not on the, the old Sabbath Saturday. It's because a new beginning has happened. Even a new beginning happens in your life the moment that you believe you're justified the Bible says that the old is passed away. Behold, the new has come. He does that in the life of a man or woman, boy or girl, who trusts in Jesus Christ because they don't merely take the word as being about the patriarchs or about Old Testament Israel. They take it as being a word for them. Again, you're smart people and you can realize that people have abused this, but it doesn't mean that we shouldn't preach it. It's the same thing when we deal with things like love. It's almost hard to mention. We need to be loving to people that are doctrinally sound, but they're unloving in their doctrine. And you don't want to mention it because the moment you do, they begin to say, oh, liberalism. But the truth is, is we're to speak the truth in love or we're not speaking the truth. In other words, the melody is important as the lyrics. The way that we convey the truth is mandated by the truth itself. It matters not merely that we tell the truth. It matters 
that we tell the truth the way the truth teaches us to tell the truth. And that's vital in our lives that we must be people that are living whole Christian lives. And not merely picking what we want. So we're giving a thorough examination. Here's another one that you probably know of. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for uh, correction and training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And now, technically speaking, that is written for the pastor. That is written for the Timothy. But does it not apply? That if all Scripture is useful for teaching, reproof, correction, training, and righteousness, does it not stand that all Scripture is useful for every man that way, that the purpose of Scripture is written so it would be taught, so that it would reprove us, so it would correct us, put us back in line, and it would train us so that we go on living that way? And is it not just not merely for the man in the pulpit to be equipped and be thoroughly uh, competent in his trade? Is it not also to make every man competent in their Christian lives? You see, God sets up by example and he, he chooses men out by example in order to lead the way, but they're leading the way so that followers become like them. We follow Jesus Christ and the ministers are to follow Christ and as they follow Christ, insofar as they do, So the congregation should follow the pastor because they're called to lead. They're called to rule in a way, not of dominance, but a way of service. They're called to watch over the souls of those they're entrusted that they will stand on the last day and give account for. They're called to preach the true word of Christ as it is written. And thankfully, not a single day do we do it perfectly. But thanks be to God that we can, we can endeavor once again to, to try. As Lloyd-Jones says, he'd go into the pulpit and he said, I'm not sure I've ever preached. But every time I go up, he makes another effort to do it, that he might do it that day. And you look at Lloyd-Jones, you certainly would look at his life and say, wow, there's a preacher, there's a man who preached. I, I think it's those who, who think they've arrived that don't ever arrive. It's often those who in humility realize it's just another effort. They realize that not even their best day of ministry is ever going to justify them. It is complete, full dependence. We're listening to a talk by Harry Reader this morning, be reminded of certain things. One of the things that just stood out was, you know, you can have all your theological T's crossed and I's dotted, but you could be lost. I mean, you could be Calvinist. You could be solidly reformed. You could be post-mill. You could have all your things all straight. You could be lost because you don't love the Lord. Fill in the blank. Whatever you think standard, strong orthodoxy is, fill in the blank. You can have all that. You could be talking to God. You could be praying to God. You could be uh, conversing with God on different things. You could be in the Word and know what the Word says, but you don't love Jesus. You're unregenerate. Your affections aren't raised for Christ. The Spirit of God is not dwelling in you. You're none of His. It cannot be simply 
that you know the doctrines. It must be that you love the truth and the one who gives the truth and you apply it to your life in obedience. You know, talkative in the Pilgrim's Progress, he doesn't like a lot of ideas about obeying the law. You know why there's a lot of problems today and controversy with doctrines and things like theonomy? It's not about theonomy. It's not about the whole idea of how the law should be applied to the state and those things. It's about the fact that people don't want to obey God. They don't want God's standard. They don't want it in their lives. They don't want it in their homes. They don't want it over their nation. Because they don't love God. It's a problem of unregeneracy. That we would not be able to have a civilized conversation over the fact that if there's no standard of the law, if there's not a law over nature, law over the state, a law over the church, then what standard do we have? You have the standard of anyone with any opinion who can speak a few eloquent words that will rule your life, whether it be at home or church or state. If God's standard doesn't rise above all men, we are people set up for tyranny and groaning under the wicked. The law of God rules over all. God's Ten Commandments should remain in the courtrooms of America because those justices are obligated to obey them and to judge righteously by them. But those Ten Commandments aren't simply supposed to be in the courtrooms of America. They should be in the homes of America. And they should be in the church of America. Because God's law cannot be separated from God's gospel though they must be distinguished. We are not saved by works of the law. But we certainly aren't saved apart from it because one had to come and fulfill the law. His name's Jesus Christ. And if there was no standard for him to fulfill, then we could have come up with anything we think of a man or Messiah that would fulfill whatever we think the standards are. And that's where a lot of people are, aren't they? They come up with their own standards and they say, that's my savior. Well, that's called idolatry. And the Bible was written down so that we would not become idolaters like Israel did. I say unbelieving Israel, not true Israel. All Scripture is breathed out by God. This is not just a word of, from man. This is a word from God to the people of God for the glory of God. And it profits us as it is taught as it reproves us, as it corrects us, and as it trains us. At the end of the day, we have one teacher whose name's Jesus by his spirit. So the apostle uses that. Let's do a psalm. Psalm 102, verse 18. Let this be recorded for a generation to come so that a people yet to be created May praise the Lord. Okay, there's a psalm. Scripture clearly is the ancestor, if you will, to the Christian life. It's speaking about this is being written for the generation to come so that they would worship the Lord. So it's not merely being written for the present history. And this is where perhaps we see mistakes being made, even by well-meaning reformers, because many of them were historicists and they 
they looked at everything happening in their time as the Bible being about that. So that's why you end up having the Pope as the Antichrist, the most debatable part of all three major confessions. The Pope is the Antichrist. And we can find ways to explain that. But the truth is, is they were interpreting history as it being all just in their time. The Bible doesn't do that. The Bible says that these things are written for the generation to come that they may worship the Lord. So it can't be just about what's happening in 2024. But it also can't be just about what's happened back in 4000 BC. And it can't also be simply what's about happening in the future. You see, the Scripture is a standard that goes through all time is to be applied to God's people to the very end until our Lord returns from heaven bodily and takes His bride to Himself. And the show's over, right? What a, what a ridiculous idea that America's bought into that we're waiting for Jesus to come, set Himself up on earth, reign for a little thousand years, and then come back again? Let people die for a thousand years? Is that how it goes? People are speaking about it's got to get so evil and worse and bad before he comes. And so we almost want the wars. We almost want the difficulty. We almost want to go ahead and let it happen. That's where you get men that are not men. Men without chests. They've lost their minds. God put us in a church not merely to admire the history of Scripture. He put us in a church so that we would live the Christian life. We would obey the Lord. That we would live for Him in every sphere of our influence. He's not asking you or me to do something beyond our influence. But He commands of us that we apply the Scripture where we are and for the sake of generations to come and to fight the fight of faith so that, like Paul did with Timothy, he prepared him to be successful in his ministry. Are you preparing people in your household to be successful in the world we live in? Are you preparing leaders to be able to lead the way in the next generations of the church? Are you thinking beyond your kids to your grandkids and your great-grandkids that what you do, how you obey Scripture, how you teach it, are you thinking beyond that? Or is it just right here? Are you doing like Hezekiah who simply is told, I'll give you 15 more years of life, but what's to come is tragic for your children, grandchildren, you won't be around for it. And he says, okay, that's good. I won't be around for it. It doesn't matter. That obviously is not the example, is it? Scripture wasn't written so that you just care about yourself. It was written so you care about what God cares about. That's why history, history is matters, but it can't be the main thing. You have to take the Scriptures to the intent in which they have been Call, uh, brought before us, and that is that we are to apply the word of Christ 
for the readers, the preachers, and everybody that's under the word of Christ. It is to be applied to God's people for all of life. And specifically in relation to justification, if this were not true, nobody would be saved. You wouldn't have the Christian life if the word of Christ is not sought after and taught this way. If the word was just about Abraham, then we would just simply trust in St. Abraham. If the word is simply about a history, you'll end up with Roman Catholicism, but you certainly won't end up with Protestant Christianity. But this word, the true word of Christ, is the family tie of justification. And without the true word of Christ, there is no Christian life. The way we handle the word makes all the difference. And it's not just for me in a pulpit. It's for you, man, in your homes. You tell your children, this word matters for you and your kids and your kids' kids. This word matters for your wife. You're to wash your wife in the word of God. That doesn't mean take a Bible, tear it apart, say, honey, let's go to the bathroom and start throwing pages at her. That ain't going to work. How do you wash your bride in the word of God is that you take the example of how the word is to be proclaimed in the pulpit and you're sharing that word in your home in family worship. And, and, and as you go along, as you go, I'm, for years, our practice has been Deuteronomy 6. When you get up, the word's relevant there. When you walk by the wayside, things come up. The word of God's applied there. When you sit down at the table, the Word of God is applied there. When you, when you lay down at night, the Word of God is being applied. It's, it, it's, it's influencing and it matters in everything that we do. It's not that you're having a church service every time, but the fact is, is the Word of Christ, you're seeking to know what pleases God in every area of life. It's actually genuine. It's honest. It's sincere. It's because you want that. And only when you're, you're changed from the inside out do you want that type of thing. And so we need true Christianity. And the only way true Christianity comes is we have the true Word of Christ preached. Now, that's your first ancestor. You'd be glad that, that that man's in your family. That's a real man. The true Word of Christ. He stands up like a, a knight with a sword. And he wins every battle. You got to battle anywhere. You bring that man out. He conquers. Because the word of God is the final authority for faith and practice. Now, but you can't stop there because the work of Christ also has to be in your family of justification. You have to have the total work of Christ. Not merely that he died not merely that he was buried, but he rose up from the grave conquering death. That's the gospel. The gospel is not merely a death, not merely a burial, but a resurrection, which involves the ascension and the, and the session at God's right hand. It's the whole gospel, the whole Christ for all, the whole church, and for the whole life. So in verse 24, look what you're introduced to. It says here, 
raised for, from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So in the center you have the cross, his death for our sins, which a lot of macho men today who think they're being macho by waxing eloquent and putting others down and, 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 and just eating people away because they don't know as much as they know in theology. They think they're men. They need a good dose of the cross in their ministry. They need a good dose of being reminded that the way he conquered was foremost dying for people's sins. That makes men merciful. It makes men gentle. It makes men great. So that's got to be the heart. But you can't miss this. The emphasis is on that this one who died is also risen. Look at the rest of the text. It says there, verse 25, who was delivered up for our trespasses, raised for our justification. Justification, of course, is he's forgiven our sins and declared us to be righteous. He's died for our sins, but he's also alive, conquering our sins. And this was so important, was it not, that Paul, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, something that I remember Richard Gaffin, you, know, you wouldn't know Richard Gaffin, but he was one of these guys out of Westminster Seminary up north, and he was a guy that dedicated a lot of his thought to this whole idea. So it's impossible for me to think about this subject without thinking of Richard Gaffin because he helped me so much to understand this concept and the importance of the resurrection. And to never leave it out is, is this, this idea, where would our justification be, he asked. Where would our justification be? Where would your justification be without the resurrection? Here's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, you would be dead in your sins. So when Paul speaks of the resurrection here, he is not saying this is simply a proof that Jesus was God only. It is saying that, but not only that. Because he was God he conquered the grave and rose up. That's absolutely true. His deity is certainly given breath in the midst of that resurrection, but that's not only what is being said, and that's not even mainly what Paul's saying in the resurrection. He's saying what he said later in 1 Corinthians. He's saying, if there were no resurrection, there's not even a resurrection of Christ. And if Christ is not raised, you are dead in your sins. Without a resurrection, there's no Christian life. 1 Corinthians 15, 17 is what I'm quoting from there. If God only forgave your sins, but did not justify us fully and completely and forever, the good news would not be good news. The total work of Christ is from incarnation to glorification. That's why you can look at the future with faith and courage and assurance is because he rose from the grave. He conquered the worst that you could face in this life. Death. Sin, which brings the wages of death. Satan, who is the adversary, the liar, the stealer, the thief, the robber of all good doctrine. 
The total work of Christ is incarnation to glorification. Paul's struggle with lacking perfection and sanctification is met by this truth. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. Don't you think that matters? If when he's struggling and saying, I'm not doing the things I want to do. And the things I'm doing. I'm not wanting to do those. I'm not honoring the Lord. I'm struggling in my pursuit of holiness. Where does he go? He goes to God's everlasting love. At the end of chapter 8 of Romans, he says, What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is and can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give, give us all things? And just stop there a minute. If you think Christianity is about what you're giving to God, you don't have Christianity. You can't give anything to God to merit anything that you need from God. It's God who's the giver. And it's God that gets the glory so that whatever we do this given day, whatever we say that's of any worth, whatever we do in mercy deeds to one another or to the world, it will not be because we are able to give anything to anyone. It's because God's given everything we have and everything will ever be to us. He's the giver. He gets the glory. He says, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? You ever feel condemned in the midst of of, of doing wrong, you've done wrong, you feel absolutely horrible. But it's God who justifies. The God who sent His Son to die for you on the cross in your place justifies. But what does He go on to say? Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. And here's the, the, the statement, same words. More than that, who was raised. That's at the center who is interceding at the right hand of God, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure... And just stop there. If you've got some idea of the Christian life that is not supposed to be conquering sin and living holy lives by faith, conquering the world of that, which is the, the desires of the eyes, the desire of the flesh, the boastful pride of life. If you're not at war with sin, if you don't think that Christian living is made to be Christian conquering, you don't have the Christian life. You're missing the resurrection in application to your faith. I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth. You think he's making a point? Nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's how Paul fought. He fought with a risen Christ. He fought with the fact that God not only justifies and Christ not only died, but he was more than that, raised. He clearly relied on the resurrection, not merely on the death of Jesus Christ. It was his heart in the cross, but his whole life where the blood of that cross flowed through his whole body, it was resurrection. Imagine a heart, a heart in your chest 
that's flowing and pumping and working correctly and all of its veins being full and, and, and putting out all of the energies that help you move your hands and your feet and help you to think and all of that. Without that heartbeat going, you have nothing. Without there being lifeblood in it, it's nothing. And you have to have both the cross of Jesus where He bled and died for you and the life of Jesus flowing through you. He had to go to heaven and ascend so He could send the Spirit of God to dwell in us. That wouldn't happen without the resurrection. So much so that Paul was about the resurrection when he went certain places, pagan places, they thought he was speaking about another God. So it's not too far-fetched to say, here's a family member in the lineage of justification. The Greek word for resurrection is the word agaro, which means to awake, awaken, rise up, or rise. It is used in Romans 8.11 and Romans 8.34, as we've read. It's also used, um, surprisingly here, Romans 10, verse 9. You've heard it before. Because if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord... And you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You'll be saved. Oftentimes we just stop at that. Confess him as Lord. You're saved. You don't have the Christian life. If you don't have belief in the resurrection. Of Christ in particular. See the the resurrection is not a corollary to the gospel. It is the pinnacle of the gospel. It is the essential matter of the gospel. One may say that at the death of Christ, he said to Telestai, it is finished and it was true. The atonement of Christ finished the work of paying for your sins, but the gospel was not finished. Christ was not finished. And it is as if many Christians today live as as if that's all he's done until he comes again. He reigns now. He's, He's Lord now. He's the one who is from heaven sent his spirit to live in his people now. He was given authority on heaven and on earth now. He's not waiting in order to conquer. He is conquering. And the evidence of that is in the New Testament church on earth in the midst of a dark society. His very stars have come down and shone in this world to let a dying, lost, hopeless world know that there is hope only in Christ alone. And that church will grow and that church will expand and his government will be of no end. The total work of Christ does not stop and then go midway and then wait thousands of years to do the work. He is being patient towards us so that all may come to repentance. Is there any chance that those whom he died for will not come to repentance? Absolutely no chance that he will be a failure in his work. He accomplished the total work for us, not merely in his death, but in his resurrection and the power of justification by faith. I give them eternal life, he said, and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. If you have a Savior who's not present in your life today, you don't have a Christian life. If you have a Savior who basically is in heaven and you've got to keep yourself, you don't have a Christian life. But if you have a Savior who's interceding for you, that's the only way we can have Christian lives. If you have a Savior who's rose from the grave in our struggle of sanctification, who gives us confidence when we have fallen to get back up again, and when we've fallen again to get back up again, why is it that we persevere? Because Christ is raised. 
Paul is communicating in this way, I believe, to tell this church in Rome in the midst of some of the most horrible leaders that would ever exist in history. One in whom we can pinpoint would be understand as the Antichrist himself, Nero, who would be there and who would do the cruelest things would accuse Christians, who would blame Christians, and who would act as God Himself in the land. He is speaking to people that are under the worst rule possible, the greatest empire, where you could basically end the last empire before Christ's empire has come. And Christ's empire has come. And the fact of the matter is, if you took the Roman Empire, the United States would be like a drop in the bucket on that map. Africa would be a drop in the bucket a little bigger drop, but a drop in the bucket on that map. You could put all the major nations in the Roman Empire and still have room to roam around in. That's how big the Roman Empire was. And he's speaking to these believers who are going to face persecution, death, gruesome pain and torture. And he's telling them how to have the Christian life. And if he tells them that, and it's adequate for them, and it's adequate to help prepare them for the strengthening that they will have to face, the the giants and difficulties that they will go through, then how much more is it adequate to make us competent men fit for every good work? When the true word of Christ is preached and the true work of Christ is received. Romans 4, 24-25 is central as we see to the Christian life. It is encompassing, like Luther said, to the Christian life because just like Abraham was faced with the obstacles of his own body. Do you have obstacles today? Are you facing things that you think are insurmountable? Not just think. Not just think. Things that are absolutely unable to be conquered. Things that physically are impossible for you. Look at Abraham. Abraham looked at his own body as good as dead and the deadness of his wife's womb and saw that there was no human way possible for the promise to be fulfilled. And what did he do? Pass those obstacles. He didn't, just, he didn't ignore the obstacles. He didn't ignore the truth. He didn't, he didn't turn away from looking at the news. He said, yeah, that's how bad it is. It's really bad. I love when a dispensationalist come to me and start telling me, look how bad it is and how all the things are matching up and, and these different things. And I'll say, you know what? It's actually worse than you think. And then I give them a little bit more information. I'm not saying that to depress them. I'm saying that to show them that in spite of the worst possible circumstances that are humanly impossible to conquer, the Christian life, if we get it, in the power of the resurrection, will not only be able to conquer, but by faith will be successful because Christ has been raised. We should be a people of the most hope as the scriptures were written that by the hope and encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. So you face the obstacles like he did. He believed God. Are you believing God? When people say, well, I don't believe it's ever going to get any better. Do you, do, you, do you not believe the Bible? Because if you don't believe the Bible, it's no longer an issue of building up. It's an issue of unregeneracy. You're now part of the mission field, not the missionary. That's what someone says, right? If you're not part, if you're not a missionary, you're the mission field. And a lot of that is trying to distinguish that, even in the church. Because a lot of people are trying to run uphill and they've never believed the Lord. They never loved the Lord. They've never turned to the Lord. Somebody told them that they're a believer. 
They told themselves a believer, but deep down, they don't love Jesus. They don't act like they love Jesus. They hate his law and all they want to do is talk, but they don't want to obey Christ. And if you want true Christianity, you've got to get the total word of Christ and you've got to get the total work of Christ. He didn't come just to give you a bunch of fanciful stories so you can show up on a Sunday and admire and walk away and say, oh, I feel good in that place. He wants you to go home feeling good in your bones because the risen Christ has come to dwell in you. He wants you to go home with, with a fuller lunch that you can get in the afternoon. He wants you to have his spirit in you, dwelling in you. He wants one day, not merely to come back bodily himself, but that the Father too would dwell with us and the spirit with us. And so that there would be a future where the triune God is dwelling with his people, God's people under God's rule, enjoying God's presence. The apostle teaches we're justified the same way Abraham was facing the obstacle, not ignoring it, facing our total inability with the power of Christ's resurrection to awaken us from death to sin. The Nicene Creed says, For us and for our salvation came down from heaven, was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary, was made man, was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered, was buried, the third day he rose again according to the Scriptures and ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father and he shall come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead whose kingdom shall have no end. Well, I have to wrap it up. So I know, I know better having spent time in this text. I know better now, and I hope you do, that the whole of the Christian life is indeed encompassed here. This is the place. You want to know what Christian living is? It's going to be Christian living that has these two family ties. The, the total word of God, the total work of Christ. But I have to say something that's just as vital as everything I've said and it's only in a few words, but it's just as vital because it's not even about that you come here seeking justification today. You don't get justified by seeking justification. You get justified by seeking God. If you're on a journey out there, I want to come. I need to, I'm, I'm going to try to be saved. I'm going to get saved. I'm going to find it. I'm going to get all the things right. You're not going to be. You see, Abraham was looking to God. He believed God. He didn't believe just a doctrine. He believed a person. And that's how people are justified. Is they believe God. They come after God. They follow after God. They love God now. And they love His people. And if you say that you love God and hate your brother, you're, you're a liar, the Bible says. Have you found God? Or more importantly, has God found you? And if he has, get to the business of conquering. Get to the business of living the Christian life. Throw the doubts and shame away. Get back up. Be strong in the Lord. Act like men. And live the Christian life. Let's stand together for prayer.